0: Our scripture reading is in Ephesians 2, and as you turn there, let me just again say thank you for having us uh, this morning. My son Caleb is with me, and we have little, little ones, so uh, it's sometimes hard to, to bring them in to the church uh, lest they distract everyone here. But we're excited to be here. I'm thankful for Jeremiah. Uh, it's, it's very obvious to me that he is really God's man for this place, and he is uh, a wealth of Bible Uh, A wealth of ecclesiology theology and has really led uh, many men well and I know is leading this church well Uh, we're thankful for him and actually at First Pres we're indebted to him he was the intern who was running the college ministry before I came and apparently he's able to do more in 10 hours as an intern than I can do in 50 so we're we're thankful for him he really did lay the foundation uh, of the college ministry at First Pres and we're uh, greatly indebted to him Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's give attention to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Well, uh, if you've ever seen the, the movie Saving Private Ryan, uh, if you haven't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a spoiler alert to the ending of the movie. Uh, but you have had 22 years to watch it, so I would think by now you're good. Uh, the very end of the movie, this, this is a movie about uh, World War II and the invasion at Normandy. And a widow has lost uh, three of her sons. She's obviously lost her husband, but now she's lost three of her sons in battle. And she has another son out there, Private James Ryan. And the secretary of the army decides that it would be too devastating for her if, if she were to lose this final son and be left all alone. And so he, he sends a group of eight army rangers led by Captain John Miller, uh, Tom Hanks' character. And they go to find Private Ryan. They go through all kinds of unbearable circumstances. Many of them lose their lives. And they finally, towards the end of the movie, find a Private Ryan. And rescue him. And, uh, but in the process, they are ambushed by the Germans. And John Miller is dealt a fatal wound. And as he is bleeding out, he looks at Private Ryan. And he says to him, James earned this. James earned this. It's a powerful moment that would shape Private James Ryan's life. Actually, it's a powerful moment that would be a death sentence to Private Ryan because it is the words of every worldview that you will ever encounter in this world. Earn this. And what we're going to rejoice in this morning in this passage is that God is not a God who says to us, earn this. But instead, He is a God who rescues us from death to life by grace alone and recreates us into His image for His glory. So my hope this morning is that really through the beautiful simplicity of this passage, you will rejoice afresh at that reality and that you would share that reality with others, even from this uh, simple passage. Paul is, since we're jumping into the passage here, Paul is writing from prison and he's writing to a church that he really loved. You can tell that even through the lack of uh, rebuke in in this letter. He's writing to a people who... Uh, knew him well he had planted this church he had labored there for three years uh, he, he is very fond of this church and so far he's told them wonderful things now, chapter one is all about all of the beautiful blessings that we have in Christ Jesus and he's prayed that not only would they know this in their minds but that deep down they would they would know this in their hearts that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened that they might know what Christ has done for them And so this morning, what I want us to see is three things. First, here in verses 1 through 3, I want us to see that we were dead men walking. We were dead men walking. Paul says here in in verse 1 that we were dead. And this is, sometimes we wonder, what's common for all of humanity? Well, one of the things that's common for all of humanity is that we were dead. All of us are united in the fact that that we were dead. And we were dead for two reasons. First, we were born that way. Verse 3 says that by nature you were children of wrath. That is uh, that is that in your very being when you were born, you were a sinner. Psalm 51 speaks to this. Psalm 139 speaks to this. In the very beginning, we see Adam, the head and representative of all humanity, fail. And when he falls... Uh, the, the, the process that comes from that is death. God had promised it, and it comes. The very next chapter, uh, Cain kills Abel. There's a murder. And in the very next chapter, Genesis 5, there's a genealogy. And after every single person that's talked about, the refrain comes forth, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We're dead because sin courses through our veins. And this is the spiritual condition of everyone uh, when they come into this world. I, I am a sinner by nature. You are a sinner by nature. I have four children and I never had to teach a single one of them the word mine. All of them learned that word, knew that word innately from the very beginning of their being mine or no, because they're sinful. As beautiful and sweet and wonderful as they are, they're sinful just like I am sinful. So we're, sinf- we're dead because we're born that way. But secondly, we're dead because we choose to sin. It's not just that we're born sinners. We also choose to sin. And Paul dives in here quickly in verse 2 and says there's, there's three enemies that we chose to follow. One is the course of the world. This is that world system, that structure, the, the worldviews, the political agendas that are antithetical to the Scripture that are antithetical to God and his uh, holiness, they can be as simple as something like the American dream, a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That if I, if I have a wife and a house and two kids and a dog and two cars and a garage, then I'm happy. I, I, I'm owed happiness. And if I don't have those things, I will not be satisfied. That is a, that is a world agenda that maybe in bits and pieces are are part of what Scripture might tell us to, to be a part of. And certainly, we can enjoy those things. But when we live for those things to make us happy, we've listened to the world that said, if you do this, you'll be happy. Or it might be more complex. It might be that we've bought into what the world says about sexuality or gender or race or equality that are actually opposed to what God says in His Scripture. Oftentimes we follow these without thinking about what does God actually say? What does God actually desire? So we followed the course of the world. But secondly, in verse 2 there, he says, we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This, this is long form for Paul saying we have followed Satan, another one of our enemies, that, that Satan is the one who uses the flesh and uses the world to tempt us to disobey God that he is the author of lies, that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that he sows seeds of conflict between us and God. That's actually one of the curses that God said would happen in Genesis 3, that that the serpent will sow seeds of conflict between us and God and between us and one another in our relationships. Wherever there is conflict, you can be sure that Satan is rejoicing because that's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. He sows seeds of conflict, and we have followed him. In verse 3, the third enemy, we, we have lived according to the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Our our flesh is uh, often saying to us, doesn't that look good? Doesn't that taste good? Doesn't that feel good? If you had that, wouldn't that feel so good to you? We, we, we live life in the flesh, inside our inside our bodily desires and our mental direction, uh, when we do that apart from God's direction, we are following the flesh. We're so often governed by our fleshly desires instead of asking, what would please the Lord? Is this a God-given desire? Is this a desire that would honor Him? We think, well, this will feel good, so it's got to be right. It's got to be good. And the end result of all this in verse 3 is that we're dead, uh, as Paul has said and as we've already mentioned. And dead here means dead. Paul's not using a different word that could mean partially alive or um, close to life. He means dead. That because of sin coursing through our bones, because of our following the enemies of our lives, we are dead. And because we are dead, we're actually storing up for ourselves wrath. Verse 3. Wrath is that part of God's character that we don't love to meditate upon. I remember reading um, uh, A.W. Pink's little tiny book uh, on the attributes of God. And when he got to wrath, one of the things he said about it was that we should spend time meditating upon the wrath of God. And I thought, I've never meditated upon the wrath of God. Avoided it, yes. Uh, Thought about it a little bit when I have to, okay. But meditate upon it? Wrath is that part of God that hates sin. It, it's, it's linked to his holiness. He's holy. Because he's holy, he's pure, he's righteous, he can't be in the presence of sin, he can't stand sin, and he has to deal with sin. And so wrath, as, as Dr. Thomas at, at First Pres often refers to it, is actually the reflex of God's holiness. It's a reflex of God's holiness. His holiness has to act when faced with sin. Just like a muscle when it's put to the test. And its response, not in a rash sort of way like our anger, but in a calculated way, is poured out upon sin. So if you're you're not in Christ today, this is actually your condition. This is who you are right now, apart from Christ. And you might feel very alive, but you're actually just a dead man walking. I've been doing college ministry now for, oh, this is my 17th year or 18th year, something like that. Um, And I often share this passage because it's such a beautiful, clear passage of the gospel. When I'm sitting down with a student who's never heard the gospel or who uh, needs to hear the gospel fresh or whatnot. And when I get done with verses 1 through 3, I'll often pick up my Bible and say, well, it really was great sitting with you today. I've enjoyed coffee, and uh, that's the message of the Bible that I wanted to share with you. So thanks for being with me. And I'll start to get up like I'm leaving, and I'll look back, and, and their face is priceless. And it's not sort of a cruel joke on my end, but what it does is it drives home the reality that if this actually is the message of the Bible, desperation, despair, hopelessness is the only appropriate response. And I've never seen a student, when I've done that, smile and be happy. It's not the appropriate response. We're dead in our sin. We followed these enemies. We deserve God's wrath. We can't change ourselves because dead men can't get themselves out of the grave. We need something to happen to us. And that's the beauty of this passage, verses 4 through 9. We have been made alive by grace. We've been made alive by grace. What happened? Well, if you've ever tried to change something about you you know how difficult that is you know your new year's resolutions last for a few weeks and then you stop them and usually they have to do with some sort of exterior thing i want to lose some weight i want to eat better but when it comes to changing our hearts it's even more depressing it's so difficult to change a character aspect of of our hearts but but the scripture actually says we we need a heart transplant and who among us can actually do that none of us but the good news is, verse 4, but God. Two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God. God acted. It, it's almost as if he put his holiness aside for a moment and decided to act in his mercy. Now God doesn't do that. He's completely whole. But, but he, he, he brings out the beauty of his mercy. He holds back his wrath towards those of us who actually deserve it. And he moves towards us in grace. And it's important, I think, to camp out in this area because this becomes so commonplace for us as Christians or in our culture that what actually shocks us is that God acts with justice towards anyone, not that God acts with grace towards anyone. The shocking part of the Bible is not that God judges wicked sinners. The shocking part of the Bible is that he actually gives grace to anyone. Because we all are dead. We all followed our enemies. We all deserve wrath. Think about with me Psalm 2, for example. Psalm 2 is, is this beautiful psalm of the kings of the earth are coming and they're setting themselves against God and his anointed. And they want to throw him off because they feel like he's put a yoke upon him, them that they hate. They hate God. And, and Psalm 2 says, God, though, sits enthroned in heaven and he laughs. I mean, just think about how silly it is that things that were made by him out of clay want to now overthrow him. But he also laughs because he has enthroned his anointed in Zion. He has put Jesus on the throne and he cannot be defeated. And so far, nothing's really shocking, right? We get to the end and, and God says to these evil people that, God, that Jesus will destroy them in their way. Should that shock us? that that God would destroy his enemies who are trying to overthrow him and his son and his son's people. No, that shouldn't shock us. But what shocks us is that then God says, now kiss the son lest you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's saying to to us, to everyone, but also to those kings specifically, yes, you deserve wrath. No one's shocked by that. Look what you've done and look who you are. But you can still come kiss the son and find refuge in him. What's shocking is that God would give grace and the invitation to grace to those wicked kings. And guess what? If, if we're putting ourselves in that passage, we're that wicked king who wants to throw God off of his throne. And we need to kiss the son and find refuge in him uh, unless we have and we rejoice in that reality. One theologian said it this way, God pours out wrath upon the wicked. Yes, that, that doesn't surprise us. Yet God also acquits the guilty and only the person who understands something of the greatness of his wrath will be mastered by the greatness of his mercy. Only the person who understands something of the greatness of his wrath will understand something of the greatness of his mercy. I think that's why Pink is telling us to meditate upon his wrath. It's, it's, it's so beautiful what God does for us. But why did he do it? Look back at verse 4. He did it because of his rich mercy. Mercy is that we don't get what we deserve. We deserve death and wrath, but he pours out mercy. Verse 4, later on, he does it because of his great love with which he loved us. God doesn't love us because Christ died for us. God loves us before the foundation of the, the world, and so he sends Christ to die for us. His love for us, not because of anything within us, because we deserve wrath, Because of the beauty of his love, simply because he chooses to pour out his affection, he shows us mercy and grace. And then verse five, seven, and eight, we see the word grace coming in over and over and over. Grace is that we get what we don't deserve. If mercy is we we don't get what we deserve, grace is that we get what we don't deserve. We get we get blessing instead of wrath. And then verse seven, I love verse seven, so that the coming ages he might show forth the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us, uh, his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's as if Paul is sort of running out of words to describe how wonderful this is. Immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is so gracious. God is so kind. God pours out his mercy upon us in Christ Jesus. God initiated in the midst of a dire situation. He did it because of mercy, grace. And love, But but notice how he did it. Notice the words in Christ coming up everywhere. In verse 5, with Christ. In verse 6, in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's favorite way to refer to what it means to be a Christian. He loves to use the word in Christ instead of believer or Christian. Because it really describes the core of our identity. That when we're Christians, we are united with Christ Jesus. We, we are united with him in his obedience in his earthly life. He was obedient where we couldn't be. But his obedience is now given to us. We're made righteous. We're united with him in his death on the cross. We deserve to be there. But he took it on for us. And so the sin is dealt with. We're, we're united with him actually now, even in the heavenly places. Uh, you, you look back here in verse um, verse 5 that he raised us up and he, or verse six, he raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. That, that actually there's, there's a perspective of our identity right now that our, our home is in heaven. That where Christ is, we are, that we live our life right now in this earthly existence. We're united with him. And when he returns, we'll be united with him in glory forever. That that is the core of who we are. That's the core of our identity that we are in Christ Jesus. And then he comes to the climactic verse, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul could not be more clear here that it is not merit, it's grace. That it's not works, it's faith. That it's a gift. That brought about this transformation from dead man walking to raised up in his grace. Theologians debate here what this idea of this gift is. What is this gift referring to? Is it referring to grace? Is it referring to salvation? Is it referring to faith? Is it referring to all three? Well, if it's referring to grace, grace by nature is a gift. There's no such thing as grace that's not a gift. We don't deserve it. God pours out his grace upon us. Saved here is a picture of something that we couldn't do for ourselves. If we're drowning in the ocean and we can't rescue ourselves, someone rescued us. Well, of course that's a gift. We couldn't do it for ourselves. Faith, in some sense, makes the most grammatical and conceptual sense that, that even the faith that we put in Christ Jesus we couldn't manufacture. Think about it. A, a, again, a dead man can't will to be alive can't hope to be alive, can't have faith for someone to come and rescue him that he might be alive. The only way that dead man can come back to life is if God does everything. Now, God doesn't do the believing for us, but what the passage is saying is that it's all a gift. In fact, I think all three of them are being referred to as a gift here, that grace, saved, and faith, they're all a gift from the Lord. None of it we could do on our own without the Lord regenerating our hearts by his grace, setting his affection upon us and saving us. It's a bit like Christmas. When we we come to Christmas morning with our children, we don't have them come out and look at the gifts and say, you know, all these gifts under the tree are wrapped for you. We love you. Um, They're your gifts. However, before you open them, we need you to run in your room, get your journal, bring it out, Give me your tally from this year of all your good works versus all your bad works. And if your good outweighs the bad, you can have these gifts. No, we we don't do that. Instead, we say, these gifts are yours. Open them. Enjoy them. We love you. We've been blessed. And so we want to bless you as well. But what a a foolish child it would be who saw those gifts and said, yeah, I'm not going to open that. For whatever reason... I'm not going to enjoy that gift. I don't feel like opening that. The, the, the gift, the appropriate response to the gift is to take and enjoy. And that's what faith really is here in this passage. The gift of salvation is offered to you by grace. Take it, open, enjoy by faith. So we were dead men walking But we've been made alive by grace. And lastly, we're recreated for good works. We've been recreated for good works. Verse 10 here. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a beautiful passage because it's so complete. It speaks to who we were before Christ, how we were helpless how God acted to save us in Christ Jesus. But then it also speaks to what our life should look like from there. It is it is a full, complete passage. And so the argument goes, um, okay, well, if this is all of grace from start to finish, if God has redeemed me, if He's the one that has blessed me with this gift, if, if He now even has an outworking, a plan for an outworking of my life, then I can do whatever. And... Uh, if there's anything that epitomizes Christian evangelicalism, it's that. That God is a God of grace, and I can go to him when I feel bad, and I can ask for forgiveness, and I can sort of rub the magic genie, and he'll make me feel better, and I'll go about my way. I I, I prayed a prayer a long time ago, and nothing wrong with prayer. That's how we communicate with the Lord, that we need him but my life hasn't looked any different from that moment, but I'm sure glad I'm saved. It's, it's easy in. It's easy believism. It's, it's, it's American Christianity. And the question is, what's, what's wrong with that sort of perspective that if we, if we read this and we come away and say, awesome, well, I can do what I want because God will forgive me. Besides everything being wrong with that, this kind of love from the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit should change our motivations, should change our hearts, should change our desires, should change our very lives. You and I have been recreated into the image of Christ so that we might imitate Christ. We haven't been saved to do whatever we want. We've been saved because he wants to now put us on display as his masterpiece. The word poema here in the Greek, masterpiece. is as if God says, I want to take this ugly lump of clay that's been marred by the fall, I want to turn it into something beautiful. Then I'm going to actually put it in the gallery so that when people come, they say, that used to be a lump of clay. Wow. What kind of potter must have transformed that? What an amazing potter that takes lumps of clay and makes them his masterpiece. Not for our glory, not so that we can say, look how great I am, I look good in a suit. But so that we can say, what an amazing father I have. I know what I was. I know what he's done. And I give him all praise and glory. And that the world would give him praise and glory. And not just you and I individually, but the use here are plural. That we as the church are his masterpiece. We have been put on display that when people look and see how we love each other, how we're united with each other, though we might disagree on a million things, we're still united in Christ Jesus. Especially in our world today, they look at that and say, Wow, there's something special there, and I want to know about it. That's what's going on in this passage. The final scene in Saving Private Ryan is uh, after John Miller's died, and and uh, Private Ryan is now an old man. And he goes to he's in he's at National Arlington National Cemetery. He's with his wife and his kids and his grandkids, and he's just sort of distant from them and speaking to this tombstone. And he says that there's not been a day that he hasn't thought about those last words. John Miller earned this and he starts to break down and his wife comes up next to him and asks what's wrong and, and he says to her tell me that I've lived a good life tell me that I've been a good man that act of heroism by John Miller and those final words had had such a massive impact on James Ryan that they on the one hand motivated him to live a good life but on the other hand They caused him to live the rest of his life in a state of shame. Because who could have actually earned back what John Miller gave to them? What what a wonderful Savior that we have. That he doesn't say, now earn this. Instead he says, I love you so much that I have rescued you from death to life. Now rejoice and live as the new creation you are. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation old is gone, the new is coming. So perhaps as you, as you hear this this morning, you find yourself in, in maybe one of a few places. One might be that you, you hear this regularly and you rejoice in this and you love the Lord. And I would say, praise the Lord, rejoice in that. Continue to excel in that area of, of thanking the Lord for this. And go share this with someone. Go share this passage with someone who is desperately in need of hearing the gospel. But maybe you've actually never opened the gift. And to you, I would say, what is it that you're waiting on? A better love? You'll never find it. A better covering for shame? You'll never find it. What makes most sense of the fact that you are feeling broken and ashamed and guilty and angry and full of fear all the time, but the fact that you're dead and you're separated from the God who made you. But God is rich in mercy. Open the gift by faith. Place your faith in Christ's finished work on your behalf. He who died and rose again for you, if you would believe upon him. And then thirdly, maybe you've heard this a million times, but the question for you is, does it actually reflect your life? You know that God's done this. You know that you're his masterpiece, but do you live like that? I'm reminded of of the final words to Ephesus in in this Bible. In Revelation 2, they come up again. And Ephesus was a church where Paul had planted, Paul had labored for three years, Titus had preached, Apollos had preached, Timothy had been their pastor. Think about this rich tradition. And then to top it off, the apostle John had lived out his final days there more than likely. So this rich history of this church, beautiful And yet the final words to them in Revelation 2-4 are, but I have this one thing against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. And perhaps today you feel like that. Maybe Jesus is saying to you, yeah, 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 you've experienced all these things, but you've abandoned the love that you had at first for me. Well, What do we do if that's the scenario? Remember the grace of Christ Jesus. Repent of a lack of gratitude and return rejoicing to the lover of your souls that he might then make you a display of his grace even through your faithful response to him and he might receive great glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise you for this beautiful passage. Praise you that we, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins and and worthy of wrath, you by your grace have redeemed us. You have set us free. You have covered us and washed us in the blood of Christ. And for those of us who know that this morning, help us to rejoice and, and, and believe afresh and run to Jesus and live for him. And for those of us who may not know that reality in a real and life-saving way, would we put our faith in Jesus Christ and find life? Lord, we love you. We need you. We pray your blessing upon us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.